Thank you for downloading the Aging Matters podcast. To find out more about how Transitions Life Care is providing care and comfort for life's changing needs, visit transitionslifecare.org. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. 60 minutes devoted to giving you all the information you need when caring for a loved one with Nicole Cleggett and Jason Kong. Welcome to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Good afternoon to you. Still getting used to this four o'clock start time. Jason Kong here with Nicole Cleggett representing Transitions Life Care and Transitions Guiding Lights. Nicole, how are you doing? You know, I'm, I'm doing well. I'm, I'm here and I'm healthy and so I've got a lot to be grateful for. That's really all we can ask for, Nicole. And we've got a wonderful show lined up. And we're going to start out talking about something that uh, is, is super important for a lot of caregivers and care receivers. And we're going to be talking about long-term care and Medicaid because there's so many questions as to how this is paid for. Because sometimes that can be a big surprise for folks when they realize, oh, um, this isn't covered by my, my health insurance. But uh, we've brought on an expert to discuss that with us. We've got Jonathan Williams on the line. He's an attorney with Clarity Legal Group. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, Jonathan, you know, uh, when we when I'm working with family caregivers at Transitions Guiding Lights, a lot of times, as Jason alluded to, folks get really uh, surprised when they find out that a lot of the care that their loved one requires is not actually covered by Medicare, and it's not covered by their private insurance. And um, and suddenly they realize, oh my gosh, but my mom or dad needs like 24-7 care, and I'm really not the best person to do it. How do I handle that? And, and so th- then when they start to hear things like, well, you know, how much can your loved one afford out of their own pocket? Or how much can the family afford pooling their money together to pay for this care? Really, really comes as, as a big surprise to folks where they just make the assumption that a lot of our long-term care is covered by uh, typical insurances out there. Yeah, Nicole, that's right. Um, you mentioned a lot of the different ways that people pay for long-term care, and and I do want to focus a little bit on Medicaid, which is one of the more important ones. But uh, but yeah, families have to come up with different solutions for their long-term care needs, and a lot of people do get surprised that long-term care expenses are not covered under regular health insurance plans. So, you know, the cost of home caregivers the cost of assisted living, the cost of nursing home care, these things are not covered by your health insurance. They're not covered by Medicare. Um, And so people have to scramble sometimes to come up with another solution. And we're talking thousands of dollars per month. And so uh, it's a big problem for some families. And so, um, you know, one of the things I wanted to mention was the different ways that this stuff gets paid for. And, uh, of course, the first one is is out-of-pocket funds. So any long-term care facility or any um, you know care provider would be happy to take your money. Uh, they'd be happy to have your family pool their money and and pay for this out of pocket. Uh, and of course they'll provide the services. Uh, but but again with the expense that's that's not a long-term solution for a lot of families. Uh, another solution uh, is long-term care insurance. Uh, and as as attorneys we advise all our clients to uh, at least explore the possibility of long-term care insurance coverage. Uh, long-term care insurance is uh, a special kind of insurance policy that covers these kinds of expenses uh, in ways that health insurance plans don't. Um, and so you've got to uh, apply for it and you've got to go through underwriting and 
and then you you get a, an offer for for coverage if you can qualify. Uh, not everybody can qualify because uh, if if you have certain uh, medical conditions, they're not going to uh, insure you, uh, and and sometimes the cost is just more than it's worth. Um, but uh, but everybody ought to at least explore that because you know the cost of a monthly premium is going to be a lot less than the the, the monthly cost of care. So so I've uh, I've, th- heard, these, uh, I've heard some things about long term care insurance, Jonathan. Um, you know, it's sort of there's a certain uh, some of the things that I've heard is that you know if you fall into certain income brackets, it's really a great idea. But if you're below a certain bracket, you know maybe not so much. And if you're above a certain bracket, probably not necessarily necessary. Do you find that to be true? Is it, is it really more of for the people sort of in the middle? Yeah, that's right. You know, if you've got enough money that that you can self-insure essentially, then then yeah, the cost of insurance is is maybe not going to be worth it um, because you know it's it, it's sort of a a gamble as to whether you're ever going to need long-term care uh, insurance. And so, you know, if you've got enough funds, then you don't need to worry about it. But on the flip side, if if this is going to be so much of a chunk of your monthly income or if it's going to dig into your savings just to cover the insurance, then it's it, it's not workable for you. So it, it is for folks that are sort of in the sweet spot where they don't have enough funds to, to cover themselves uh but but they also can afford the insurance, and, and that's sort of the sweet spot. And in fact, uh, the the market for long-term care insurance has changed a lot. Um, and, and a lot of times, these long-term care benefits are provided through a life insurance policy. So you, so a lot of times, you're purchasing a life insurance policy, which has a rider to it that will allow you to tap into the death benefit uh, early to cover these kinds of long-term care expenses. So that's another um, another model, and you know, our our law firm doesn't sell insurance, and and so we w- we would refer folks to to qualified folks who can help them uh, get the coverage that they need. But it's it's definitely worth looking into for for families that need it. Sounds like it. So so, what are some other ways that folks can pay for long term care if they're faced with that need? So another couple that are that are that are valuable in limited circumstances. So you mentioned Medicare, and uh, Medicare does cover some some long-term care expenses, but only in the rehab context and only for a certain set period of time. So let's say, for example, your, your, your loved one has a fall and they have to go, go to the hospital and they get the care that they need in the hospital and then they get dis- discharged for rehab. Well, Medicare will cover the rehab associated with the hospitalization. And so you can get nursing home care um, paid for through Medicare um, as as rehab, but it's time limited. So so the maximum benefit is 100 days. And in fact, they only cover the first 20 in full. Right. And then after that, there's a pretty hefty daily copay. So Medicare does cover some of this stuff, but only in a limited way. Yeah. And, and then the other one... I was going to say, you know, I think for folks to, to keep in mind, because the, the Medicare piece does get quite confusing. Is So the Medicare benefit, my understanding is that it's really all about building a person back up, restoring them to where they were at before. So as soon as a person, let's just say you broke your hip and you were in rehab and you, the whole idea is that you're able to regain your mobility again and walk and, and be the way you were before your your hip fracture, as soon as you reach a point where you're not 
getting any better and you're sort of hitting a plateau and that plateau lasts for a period of time, then that is really when that Medicare benefit ends because you are no longer restoring where you were. Now you're at a plateau. So now your care is considered more custodial or maintenance cares, which means, you know, you're, you're, we're just trying to maintain, you may still need care because you don't have the mobility that you used to have. And now maybe you need someone to assist you for transferring, or maybe you need some help with, with baths and showers. But the point is, is that you're not really going to get any better as far as your mobility goes. And so now that's when Medicare ends. And that's where we really run into some of these long-term care issues. Am I correct? Yeah, that's mostly right. Um, the way I think about it is, um, are we talking about are we talking about rehabilitation or are we talking about long-term care? Right. You know, are we helping somebody get better from an illness or an injury or are we just maintaining um, their quality of life the best we can because they need these supports on a long-term care basis? So that's kind of the dividing line. And, and like I said, the Medicare benefit only applies to the rehab part and only when associated with, an, uh, with a hospitalization and only for that, that limited time period. So, so it's only a, a limited solution for families. What other ways? So, yeah, the other one I wanted to talk about was the VA benefit. Um, that, that, that can help uh, wartime veterans or widows of wartime veterans or widowers of wartime veterans um, pay for care. There is a, a pension that the Veterans Administration provides for, um, for those people when they have financial need. And if you have financial need coupled with um, custodial needs, then the the pension can be can be made higher. So that's where you hear about the aid and attendance benefit. That's a special uh, enhanced pension program through the VA uh, for that special class of people, uh, and that's a need based program as well. And it's got its own set of rules for who qualifies and how you qualify and how you apply. And uh, it, it can be a help for some families. It's not as generous as the Medicaid benefit is. Uh, and in fact, the rules between the two programs are different enough that you need to be careful with your planning to make sure you're not accidentally messing up your future ability to get Medicaid uh, as you try, try to qualify for the VA benefit. But that is a program that can help families, um, particularly um, who, who are looking for help paying for in-home care or assisted living care because the, that kind of care is generally not paid for by Medicaid, which is the next one I wanted to talk about. We're speaking with Jonathan Williams. He's the attorney with Clarity Legal Group, and we will continue our conversation on paying for long-term care, and we'll also get into that Medicaid discussion right after this. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care. On FM 98.5, AM 680, WPTF, news, talk, traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5, AM 680, WPTF. Joined by Nicole Cleggett from Transitions Guiding Lights. Here's your host, Jason Kong. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5, AM 680, WPTF News talk traffic. Just a reminder, you can always find more information about Transitions Life Care online at transitionslifecare.org. Jason Kong here with Nicole Cleggett. Our guest on the line is Jonathan Williams, an attorney with Clarity Legal Group, and we're having a discussion all about 
paying for long-term care. And Nicole, we've discussed uh, various options so far. We've discussed Medicare. We've discussed uh, long-term care insurance, often wrapped around into a life insurance policy. But uh, the next next big one we need to get to is Medicaid. Yeah, and that's that's definitely one that is often on uh, family members' minds. About you know, there's there's lots of sort of myths out there. I think around Medicaid planning, and then there's also um, you know some some ideals around it that maybe aren't necessarily true. So I'm really looking forward to this chat with Jonathan, uh, really to help people understand uh, if Medicaid planning makes sense and, and is right for their unique caregiving situation. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Medicaid is a huge part of long-term care planning. Um, the last I checked, at least 50% of all dollars paid to nursing homes in this country is paid through Medicaid, which is huge. I mean, that's astronomical. So it's a, a big part of the long-term care system in our country. Um, and, and, you know, many, many, many families need to be thinking about this as they think about their aging loved ones and, and how they're going to provide for care. But, um, you know, one thing I want to be clear about when it comes to Medicaid is what Medicaid covers and what it doesn't. Um, the, the classic long-term care Medicaid benefit is for skilled care almost always in a nursing home setting. Uh, so the, the traditional Medicaid benefit does not apply for home care. It does not apply for assisted living care. Uh, now, there are some exceptions to that, which I'll get into, but um, you know, I want to make it clear that, that um, the Medicaid program that I'm mostly talking about here is focused on on nursing home uh, care, which is skilled care. Okay, great. So talk to us a little bit about that. I mean, you know, let's just say I'm a family in a family caregiving situation. And, you know, mom basically seemingly has not a lot of income, not a lot of assets, you know, maybe all that she has to her name is her home. And now we're suddenly faced with a huge need for custodial care for for mom and you know maybe family just can't do it because family has to work too you know is that sort of the situation where you start to say hmm maybe Medicaid might make sense yeah that's right um, when 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 we're looking at at needing to to uh, take advantage of a placement in a long-term care facility like a nursing home that's when we start thinking about Medicaid and, uh, you know, when we think about planning for Medicaid and Medicaid eligibility, um, you know, a lot of people know about that five-year look-back rule. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I wanted to start by talking a little bit about that. Um, so the idea for Medicaid is that if you don't have enough money to pay for care, then the government will step in and, uh, and they'll pay for it on your behalf through Medicaid. And uh, what that means for eligibility is uh, the asset limit for Medicaid is $2,000. So the idea here is that you're going to spend your money on your own care until you run out and you're basically below $2,000, and then you can qualify for Medicaid. Um, so early in the process, the idea was, well, maybe I'll just give all my stuff to my kids, and then I'll, then I'll qualify because I, I won't have any money anymore. And so that's when we got these look-back rules put in place. And so the idea is that if you're giving away your assets in order to qualify for Medicaid, the Medicaid's going to penalize you for that. Uh, and so what they do is when you apply, they can look back up to five years to find out if the applicant has made any kind of gifts uh, in order to qualify for Medicaid. And in fact, 
they presume that any gifts that are made are for the purpose of helping you qualify for Medicaid. And so you've got to overcome that presumption. You know, if you made a graduation present or a wedding present or something like that, you've got to overcome the presumption that you were just trying to game the system. Uh, and so, um, you know, if we're thinking long-term, like if we're thinking way ahead, mm-hmm. um, then sometimes making gifts can be a good idea because if, if I don't expect to need long-term care in the next five years, uh, maybe, it, and I've got some extra money lying around, um, which, you know, everybody does. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've got piles you, in my backyard. You can, <laughs> <laughs> you can make gifts uh, because when it comes time to apply, they're only going to look back five years and they can only penalize back five years. So uh, sometimes it does make sense to make gifts. And in fact, um, you, you know, a good solution there would be to create an irrevocable trust that can hold those funds uh, if it's structured correctly, you can uh, you can put assets in a trust that's controlled by somebody that you've got a lot of confidence in, and uh, and that can be a good solution. But you know, a lot of families don't really have that kind of lead time. A lot of families are just thinking, "Oh my gosh, and mom just had a fall. What are we going to do right now?" Uh, and so, what you want to avoid doing is making gifts right away, because you know there are a lot of misconceptions out there, like, "Oh, they're going to." They're going to take the house, so maybe we should transfer the house to the kids or something like that. Um, but any kind of asset transfer like that, if you're not getting fair market value, you know, if you're not selling the house for fair market value, uh, then then Medicaid is going to consider that a gift and they'll penalize you for it. And the penalty basically means even though you're eligible, uh, you have to sit out a certain number of months based on the value of the gifts that you've made, and you've got to you don't get the benefit. You've got to find some other way to, to get the care that you need. So, um, and so, so I was going to say, you know, sometimes, um, I guess I, I sometimes I have a, a rub with this whole discussion because a lot of times people, you know, everybody, well, a lot of people feel like, well, I just want to give all of my money to my kids and, you know, I don't really care to spend money on myself. And there's all of that, always wanting to pass down stuff to other people and I'd rather not pay for my own care and, and so on and so forth. But I don't think a lot of times people take the time to look into what does that mean if I am on Medicaid and I need care and the types of facilities that I might only get accepted to versus the types of facilities I might accept to be accepted to if I were, let's just say, to private pay for a few years and then get transferred into one of their Medicaid beds. I think there's a great uh, difference at times in what is, you know, seemed as the perceived quality or even some of the ratings of some of these long-term care communities when they are, you know, strictly Medicaid versus a mix of private pay and Medicaid. Yeah, sure. Um, that, that's a that's a great point, and and that's you know long term care planning is art more than science, mm-hmm. right? Because uh, every every family is going to be unique, and everybody's priorities are going to be unique, and th- this kind of planning is not for everybody. Um, you know, there are folks that that want to get the best kind of care available, uh, and they're happy to spend their money. Uh, their kids are going to be just fine, and and they want to make sure they get the care that they need. And so they don't want to um, max out what they can do uh, for, through, through long-term care planning. They, they would rather use their money and private pay and have a little bit more control over the kind of care that they get. And that's a perfectly fine solution. 
um, you, you, you mentioned the kinds of facilities you can and can't get into. Um, many, many, many nursing homes accept Medicaid as a form of payment, um, but not all. And the ones that don't tend to be the, the really nice ones. So the ones that are nice enough that they can get plenty of people to pay privately for that kind of care. Uh, and they don't need to rely on Medicaid patients to sort of fill their beds. Um, those are the ones that tend to not accept Medicaid. And, uh, you know, if, if you've got um, the money and you want to make sure you get into one of these really nice places, well, you know, Medicaid planning is not for you because they're not going to accept Medicaid at that facility. And then you also mentioned um, this idea of, of going in as a private pay resident and then transitioning to a Medicaid bed, um, that can happen and that can be a good solution. Um, if, you, if you are needing long-term care placement and you're seeking a Medicaid bed at the start, your options are going to be limited because not every facility is going to have a Medicaid bed open at the time that you need the care. And so um, if you're going in on Medicaid to start with, your options are going to be limited in that way. But if you have a little bit of funds that you've sort of held in reserve, um, you can get into, you, you can have a more broad um, choice uh, of where you go uh, because it, it, you're more likely to be able to get into a facility on private pay than you will for a Medicaid bed because Medicaid beds are limited. And so, yeah, families can shop around a little bit and, and say, look, we're going to go in on private pay, uh, but then once these funds have been spent, we're going to plan to transition over to Medicaid on the expectation that at that point, uh, at some time, you'll have a Medicaid bed that rolls open and we can get on that. And so, yeah, it, it does give families a little bit more uh, flexibility to where they go if they're, if they're relying on uh, a private pay model, at least to start with, yeah. He is Jonathan Williams, an attorney with Clarity Legal Group, Jonathan, we're out of time for today, but we thank you so much for joining us. If folks want to find out more information, is ClarityLegalGroup.com the best place to go? Yep, that's our website. And then uh, you can always reach us also by phone, which is 919-484-0012. That's 919-484-0012 to get a hold of Clarity Legal Group. A quick break and back with more. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF with Nicole Cleggett and Jason Kong. FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care. Jason Kong here with you alongside Nicole Cleggett, as always. And Nicole, uh, we're, we're having too much fun with... Uh, uh, lawyers and legal issues today, so <laughs> I figure we ought to we ought to stay on that track. And to do that, we're going to be talking about legal issues for older adults in light of COVID nineteen. Hard to go anywhere without discussing. Hard to do a program without getting into some COVID discussion. But we've got another expert on the line with us. We have Angelie Dorsey, Program Director for Legal Aid of North Carolina Senior Law Project. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you, Jason. So I'm really happy to have you on here today. 
today. Uh, first of all, I love the services that your organization provides our community in general, but I'm specifically interested today to talk to you about really the implications of the COVID-19 pandemic as it relates to older adults, because we know that COVID-19 uh, is definitely uh, targeting the older adult population, they are especially vulnerable, as we've seen in our statistics. More older adults than any other group across the country have um, fallen to the COVID-19 virus. And so um, super glad to have you on to talk a little bit about where we are with those statistics. And then also some of the emerging issues that are facing from a legal perspective around COVID-19 as it relates to older adults. Thanks, Nicole. You are correct, though, that um, I think everybody knows that um, the impact of COVID-19 has hit older Americans particularly hard. Um, In North Carolina, you know, just this week, we've had over 75,000 cases of coronavirus, positive cases. And um, of those cases, 12% were for people 65 and older. And if you add in the people over 50, you know, you're talking about 31% of the total cases of coronavirus in North Carolina. So the younger folks are testing positive more, but the impact on the older people um, are more severe. Um, Just, you know, we're at about um, 1,400 deaths in North Carolina. And of those deaths, um, 79% were 65 and older. And again, if you add in the people that are 50 to 64, that's the way the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services um, lists their demographic data. Um, you're talking 94% of the people who have died from coronavirus are 50 and older. Um, and the, the bigger problem is that um, 55% of those uh, deaths um, were related to people who either lived or worked in long-term care facilities. Uh, The New York Times uh, ran an article this week about um, COVID deaths that were linked to nursing homes or residential care facilities. And nationwide, it's 40% of all deaths. But North Carolina, it's 55%. Mm -hmm. And there's also a disproportional impact on people of color, too. Um, uh, 42% of the deaths involve people who were not uh, white, and of those, 33% were African American. So their their outbreaks are higher in congregate living situations too, where you know people live closely together, um, as is common in you know senior housing or residential care communities or nursing homes. And we've had more than 200 outbreaks um, in those kind of living situations in North Carolina. Definitely, for sure. And, you know, we've had a number of physicians on the show in recent weeks since the pandemic has come across our nation. And, you know, just kind of talking about some of the difficulties in and in, in what organizations are really trying to do to help those older adults remain safe during you know this very, very difficult time. And, you know, the realities are, you know, the staff are kind of coming in and out. And I, although they've stopped a lot of the external visitors from going in, um, you know, staff are still going home and they're still going to the grocery store. And I've seen a lot of really creative things that organizations have done uh, over the year or over the past, you know, several months uh, just to even try to help maintain the safety of their staff, even creating grocery stores within their buildings so that staff don't have to, you know, go out into the public settings as much. Right. And, you know, when, when the pandemic first started, some of the calls we were getting were from nursing home residents who were, you know, calling us because they, they were 
alleging they were being held prisoner in their in their mm-hmm. facility, which, you know, if you think about it, they kind of were, um, you know, initially when the outbreak started, uh, residents of long-term care facilities, you know, this is from guidance from the um, the federal, you know, Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services that sort of set all the rules for nursing homes. Um, they were, you know, nursing homes were in lockdown yeah. and um, nobody could come in or out unless they worked there except for, you know, compassionate situations. Um, and initially it was very limited to end of life care. And so that were only family and friends and, you know, nursing home ombudsmen and, and you know, non-essential healthcare providers right at the end of life. Now, the the CMS has relaxed some of those guidelines now. Um, so it's not just, you know, they're interpreting, you know, facilities can interpret compassionate situations a little differently now. Um, but that was, that was the initial calls we got. People were complaining about all of the um, uh, rules that were uh, in place initially uh, when this started, including there were, and, and they're still in place too. Uh, there are a lot of rules that involve transfer and discharge decisions um, that they sort of throw out the rules. They don't apply when there's a COVID-related transfer. And uh, we were getting calls from family members, too, who, you know, couldn't track down their their loved one because they had been transferred to another facility, either because, you know, the facility they were in was becoming a COVID-only facility or they were being moved because, um, you know, to protect them, or maybe they were COVID positive. And so there were a lot of challenges related to that initially. And so those were some of the early calls we were getting um, from, you know, people who were in facilities. So kind of where where are things today related to all of that? I mean, I've seen various different things where, you know, visitors are still generally restricted. Uh, people were trying to be creative and sort of and constructed plexiglass walls outside where residents and family members could visit, but then they were told by the state that they couldn't do that and those had to come down, but window visits were still okay. I, I haven't really followed it in the last week or so. Where, where are we today with the ability of some of these residents who have been in the building since March uh, being able to access uh, outside of a virtual connection with their loved ones, a, a physical connection? I think that depends on the facility. Um, the, the rules have relaxed a bit, although I think it's, I think they still say, you know, general visitations are not until phase three and, um, you know, we're not there yet. Um, I've heard some places are letting people visit outside if they're, you know, if their facility is not widely impacted. Um, it's sort of on a case by case basis. We, you know, we have some clients that we're trying to arrange some of the challenges with, you know, they're, they're letting people visit virtually. Um, you know, they have, may have an iPad or been on a Zoom meeting, you mm-hmm. know, and the facility will help with that. But, you know, we have people that are in their 90s and they may be visually impaired or have hearing challenges. And it's really difficult for them to understand this on a Zoom meeting sometimes. And so sometimes you need some face-to-face, which is extremely difficult. And so that's been our challenge, even when we can get access to, you know, clients in a facility, sometimes, um, you know, they, they can't understand us um, because of the technology or their, their own um, disabilities. And whereas if we were face to face, they would, you know, they would be fine to hear us and see what we're saying. So we're still working through all that. And I say it's a case by case basis. We, we've contacted ombudsmen to help us sometimes to, uh, to facilitate because, you know, they were excluded, I think, initially. And now I think that some of them are able to get in when they need to into the uh, facilities. 
So before we move on to the topics of sort of elder abuse and some of the frauds and scams that are coming up, which, of course, is to be expected, unfortunately, during this time, um, kind of hindsight's always twenty twenty. Are there any things that you think we could have done a little differently uh, during the initial phases of the pandemic to help protect older adults? I'm, I'm not sure what the solution is, but I think that the isolation was a big problem. Um, you know, they were eliminating communal meals. Um you know, that's where people socialized or the gatherings. And so they were essentially stuck in their rooms. And so I think if they could have figured out some way to, um, I, and I think some meals are happening socially distanced, you know, they're spreading people out and things like that. Um, at least that's some of the guidelines that the CMS has issued that that can happen if certain metrics are, are, have been reached. But, um, yeah, I, I'm not, I don't know the solution to the problem, but if there was some way to continue some, um, you know, human contact in some way, even if it's socially distanced, um, that was, I think that that was the bigger problem because people felt so isolated. We're having a conversation with Angelie Dorsey. She's the program director for Legal Aid of North Carolina Senior Project, and we will continue our conversation right after this break. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. 60 minutes devoted to giving you all the information you need when caring for a loved one with Nicole Cleggett and Jason Kong. Welcome back to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Jason Kong here with Nicole Cleggett. We're having a conversation about legal issues for adults in light of COVID-19. Our guest on the line is Angelie Dorsey. She is the program director for the Legal Aid of North Carolina Senior Law Project. And, uh, you know, we had Secretary of State Elaine Marshall in here. And Angelie, I know you wanted to spend some time talking about end-of-life care planning and some changes that have been made during COVID-19 that might make that a little bit easier. Um, that's right, Jason. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk about was um, the, you know, how um, in the life care planning documents, and by that I mean wills, advanced directives like um, healthcare power of attorney and living wills, how they were done before the pandemic and now. Um, our standard practice before the pandemic was that, um, you know, a will and a healthcare power attorney and a living will all required two witnesses and a notary, um, in addition to the person signing the document. And so what would happen before is everybody would gather in the same room, that's four people minimally, um, to sign and witness the document. And the notary and those principal signers had to be in close proximity to each other, which I'm sure uh, Secretary Marshall talked about. Um, that was very problematic after the pandemic began because, you know, we couldn't be around people. And again, like I mentioned before, the older adults are at a much greater risk of, you know, uh, bad outcomes with COVID. So, um, you know, they were, everybody, you know, over 65 was urged to stay home. So um, through, um, you know, the, through Secretary Marshall's urging and also other advocacy groups like the North Carolina Bar Association and other interested groups, um, they pushed the General Assembly to um, provide some emergency legislation to allow um, notaries 
to um, witness document, I mean, to sign documents um, by uh, remote notarization. And so now um, the, the other thing I wanted to mention, too, is the healthcare directives and the living wills. Um, now they do not require witnesses. So those documents can just be signed by the can just two people can be present or even remotely um, the per- principal signer and the um, notary. Um, and then with the remote notarization law, everybody can be somewhere else as long as they're in North Carolina and they use the appropriate um, electronic platform, something like Zoom, so that everybody can see what, what they're signing and witnessing. And um, that's facilitated our practice at Legal Aid greatly because we do you know, more than just my project alone does more than 2000 of these documents annually. And that's not including all the ones that get um, sent to volunteer attorneys to help do that too. So we do a fair number of those and they, you know, it's a safety concern for our clients and our staff to try to every to have everybody present in the same place. So um, that has been excellent legislation that has helped. Um, I think safety for both, um, uh, older adults who are wanting to have these documents and need the documents and um, for um, our legal staff as well. And this is a temporary change, am I correct? It is, yes. It, initially, it was um, until August 1st, but the General Assembly just, I think, last week um, extended it to March 1st, 2021. Okay. So it'll go through till next year. Good to know. Good to know. Thank you for sharing that important information and definitely makes things a lot easier for folks, especially right now when it's really hard to have FaceTime with anybody for that matter. I mean, yeah, yeah other day, right. I, the other day I accidentally went to shake somebody's hand and they jumped back like I had the plague because I had forgotten I couldn't do that. So <laughs> I was like, oh, it's okay. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to try to shake your hand. <laughs> so, I know. Like, it's very, it's, it's, it's like awkward offensive. and it's hard to get out of those habits. <laughs> it That's is, right. especially in the yeah. business, you know, world. It's sort of like your first extension of, okay, we're friends, you know, you can trust me. And, and now it's more like, you know, and even in the work that we do, you know, dealing with end of life issues and, and things of that nature, touch is such a component of comfort for for a lot of people and to not be able to do that has definitely been a challenge uh, for healthcare professionals for sure across across the I'm land sure. and world I'm so sure so mm-hmm. now unfortunately and this is not a topic i love to talk about but it's a super important topic because it's one that exists so whenever there's something that goes on in our world whether it's a hurricane natural disaster you name it you know when they were sending out new medicare cards for that matter there are unscrupulous people that exist that want to take advantage of that and fraud and scam uh, older adults uh, who would otherwise maybe not realize that something uh, was going on. And so what are some of the things that have come about related to the COVID-19 pandemic? I know some of it had to do with some of the stimulus money that was coming out and people were getting confused about that. I'm sure that there are some other areas that people are trying to take advantage of older adults and would love for you to shed some light on that to make people aware? Sure. Um, there, a lot of them are variations on the same theme. They just, you know, the, the, the scammers come up with these um, very timely topics and take the same scams and recycle them to whatever the uh, nature of the beast is at the moment. And for now, it's, it's coronavirus. Um, miracle cures. There are a lot of those kind of scams going on right now, um, particularly with you know, miracle vaccinations or home test kits. And there aren't any vaccinations yet. So if you get something in the mail or a telephone call or an email about 
you know, coronavirus, coronavirus vaccination, um, it is um, highly likely false. Um, home test kits, too, are not uh, widely available or FDA approved, to my knowledge. And so that's another one that um, the um, Federal Trade Commission um, and the uh, North Carolina Attorney General, uh, they have a consumer protection division as well. Um, both of those programs um, keep tabs on what kind of frauds and scams are happening. And so those are good websites to visit to learn more. But the miracle cures are one um, huge one um, in the last couple months have been stimulus check scams. Um, almost all of them, it's some form that they're the scammers pretending to be the IRS, um, you know, whether it's text message, um, phone call, email, um, snail mail too. Um, they're usually pretending to be the IRS. Um, and the ultimate goal is to steal your personal info, get your check. Um, they're, they've done these with deposit scams too. So they encourage you to deposit your, you know, they give you a fake check and you deposit it and then they want you to send it back. And then, you know, so it's, it's the same scheme, but just with a different name now. And the fair trade can, the federal trade commission has a coronavirus um, scam page. I mean, just, and there's a huge number of ones listed that involve stimulus check scams, um, every kind of variation you can imagine. Um, there are imposter scams still. Um, an interesting one, I haven't seen it around here, but um, fake testing sites, the scammers will set up tents and pretend to be a fake testing site to get your personal identification. So people should only go to the testing sites as directed by their um, healthcare provider or county board of health. Um, the imposters also pretend to be government agencies like Social Security, the Social Security Administration. Social Security doesn't call you. They're not going to call you and try to get your information over the phone. Um, they almost exclusively do mail. So um, that's another one to watch out for. And then there's been a long-going grandparent scam um, where um, somebody calls an older adult and pretends to be a grandchild in need or in distress and gets them to send money or wire money or send gift cards. Um, there's a Corona um, COVID style um, scam involving, you know, the, the take on the grandparent scam as well. Um, and then there are some phishing scams. Those are where the, you get these emails from the, that look like they're from the CDC or the uh, World Health Organization about coronavirus asking you to click on their links and input information or saying you're, you know, you've been exposed to somebody with coronavirus and they're basically just trying to get more personal information from you that they can use to steal your identity or your financial information. And then the other one that I've seen a bunch of um, are the helper scams. Those are where people use social media or, you know, different web apps, um, you know, the neighborhood type um, where they say, you know, we want to help people. And if you, you know, if you can't get out and you need your groceries picked up, you know, we're, you know, we're going to come help you uh, or pick up your medication. And they use it as a way to, you know, get in with the older adult and begin their, um, you know, their explaining behavior. Angeli, we're running short on time. I want to thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Is LegalAidNC.org the best place for folks to find out more about your organization? That is. They can go to our website. They can also visit our Facebook page, or we have a YouTube channel with tons of relevant information to legal issues um, during the pandemic as well, and that's Legal Aid of North Carolina's YouTube channel. 
excellent. If you just Google Legal Aid of North Carolina, you'll see most of those pop up on, right on the first page of Google when you put that in, in there. Right. She is Angelie Dorsey, Program Director for Legal Aid of North Carolina Senior Law Project. Again, Angelie, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. We are out of time for today. I want to thank both of our guests, Angelie Dorsey and Jonathan Williams of Clarity Legal Group. We hope you will join us again next Saturday. Again, we'll keep doing this at four o'clock. We like this new time. We hope you're enjoying it as well. Thank you so much for listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News talk traffic. Have a great day. You've been listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. For more information, log on to transitionslifecare.org.